from the KLX Studios from Berkeley, California. This is Frank Ling, and welcome to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, apples, castles, and MRI. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Sean Carroll, who will talk about evolution and development. Also, we'll find out why maps only need four colors. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to Booking Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm hungry for a chicken. You know, once you said that, <laughs> I got this premonition of the animal fact of the week. You know what it is? What is the chicken capital of the world? What is the chicken capital of the world? Uh, apparently it's Gainesville, Georgia. Gainesville, Georgia, really? Yes. Do they have the most number of chicken per square foot? I would have uh, picked some city in southern China, but maybe this is a self-proclaimed fact or something. <laughs> but over there, apparently they have this very obscure law that's illegal to eat a chicken with a knife and a fork. One has to eat it with their hands? I guess so. Or just a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> Puree chicken is always top on my list of things to eat. I like the chicken of the sea, though. Charlie uh, Tuna. <laughs> so I do have a real story here. Uh, that was an amazing animal fact of the week. More of an animal town fact of the week, but... <laughs> But this comes right straight from Berkeley. Oh, okay. From the labs of uh, Al- Alex Pines. You know, our good friend Alex Pines over there in chemistry, I'm thinking MRI. What is he doing now? Molecular imaging. So the great thing about MRI is you can actually look at structures of the body. And the great thing about it is you can do it non-invasively and it's painless. See why it can't be painful. But, right. but the problem right now is you don't have the sensitivity to look at individual molecules until now. One of the ideas that they've been playing around with is using a contrast agent, for example, xenon, which would hyperpolarize the environment and make a lot of these water molecules and proteins much more visible under magnetic resonance imaging. It's not xenon in its free state, or do they have to do something to it? I think it's actually probably encapsulating some sort of biomolecule. Mm-hmm. I believe xenon itself is actually poisonous. He called a hypercest, hyperpolarized xenon chemical exchange saturation transfer. I'll call it hyperzest. <laughs> <laughs> In a paper that they had in Science, Professor Pines and his colleague David Wemmer showed that they could actually show the spatial distribution of proteins within single cells and tissue samples. Pretty much down to that resolution, huh? Yeah, it's actually 10,000 times more um, sensitive than any pre-existing methods. So this offers hope for molecular diagnostics, not just for cancer, but all sorts of other diseases. And it's very promising, so if anyone's interested, you can check it out in Science it's by Professor Pines. Well, everybody loves looking at biomolecules in nature, right? Oh, I do it all the time, man. <laughs> What's your favorite biomolecule of all time? DNA. Uh, you got to love the DNA, that sexy double helix. <laughs> twisted, you know. Yeah, twisted. can go right-handed or left-handed. That's how <laughs> versatile it is. Researchers are looking at an enzyme which carries out the reaction of uh, converting methanol into formic acid. It's actually carried out by a number of enzymes, in particular methane monooxygenase and methanol dehydrogenase. Okay. So researchers for some time have known the structure of each of those individually, Yeah. but it wasn't known how they all sort of associated in the cell to actually perform this reaction. Oh, okay. 
enzymatically demanding right. reaction. Shape of those molecules make a huge difference on the... Uh... Right. And not only that, but apparently new research led by Myronova and colleagues have shown that they all associate in a big supramolecular complex, okay. which has sort of a three-handed structure, which essentially can grab the compound and pass the molecule along from one enzyme complex to the next. If only I could uh, do chemical reactions so efficiently. <laughs> It's very fascinating work, and the researchers used cryon-electron microscopy to solve the crystal structure of this huge complex and showed that it does have this interesting geometry and can explain a lot of how the reaction actually occurs. Cool. So this is a very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Biochemistry. So, Charles, have you heard that expression, an apple a day keeps the doctor away? Uh, it does work, because if you throw those apples hard enough, man, those doctors back off. <laughs> you got to have a pitching arm, though. Of course. So there's no more evidence to suggest that apples are very healthy for you. Okay. Some researchers, Barreau and Martinoli at the University of Quebec, has found that quercetin, one of the antioxidants found in apples, is actually um, very powerful for reducing cellular death from oxidation and inflammation. It's been known for a long time that quercetin is antioxidant, but I guess it wasn't until recently that they found that it had the effects of mitigating the oxidation process. So similarly, they found that eating apples seems to increase the production of acetylcholine in your brain. And so what they did is with rats, it seems to improve their memory. That is, that it staves off Alzheimer's-like symptoms. Right. Acetylcholine is a major neurotransmitter for memory association type processes in the brain. Right. I'm sure my memory would be a lot better. Yeah. Well, I'm curious now, is there anything the apple can't do? Actually, I think it was a quince that got us kicked out of Eden. The quince? Anyways, this is interesting stuff. It was reported in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. All right, and finally, some good news for mathematicians. We haven't heard anything from mathematicians in a while, huh? They're kind of busy solving problems that don't involve numbers nowadays, <laughs> so it makes it difficult. <laughs> San Jose, California, city of Morgan Hills recently approved a building which is going to house the American Institute of Mathematics, and it's going to be a replica of the Alhambra, which is the famed 14th century Moorish fortress in Spain. It's not going to be an infinite loop or something like that? <laughs> yeah, I was expecting a giant Mobius strip. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Yes. John Fry of Fry's Electronics uh-huh. to build this thing. Uh-huh. And it's going to be quite nice, apparently. It's going to have eight gardens, a 150-seat lecture hall, a golf course, and a reconstruction of Monet's garden. In- Must give inspiration for uh, mathematicians, huh? Most of the time, they just have to sit and think it's nice to have a good surrounding to do so. Yeah. Apparently, the AIM's previous building was a big windowless uh, warehouse in Palo Alto, California. <laughs> so step up, I guess. Certainly a little bit of a step up. You know, we should get a building for ourselves one of these days. Yeah, I'm not sure what it would look like. I was thinking of like the Forbidden City. But. <laughs> I was thinking of like the labyrinth in that movie with David Bowie, where you couldn't actually get to the center without uh. having to pass through various trials. <laughs> and so, like the Minotaur or something, you'd, you'd, you'd basically just have to die before you got here. <laughs> and we would be at the center broadcasting. Yes. <laughs> what, a, what a sight that would be. <laughs> so this is very fascinating developments, and uh, they're expecting it to be completed in a few years. Cool. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, Professor Sean Carroll will join us to discuss evolutionary biology. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, the endless diversity of life forms on the planet are the result of the evolutionary natural selection proposed by Charles Darwin in his seminal work on the origin of species. Yet, studying the mechanism by which such divergent life forms arise was unavailable to Darwin. But more recently, advances in molecular biology have demonstrated the genetic mechanisms at play in this process of descent with modification and spawned the new field of evolutionary developmental biology. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Sean Carroll. Professor Carroll is an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and professor of genetics at University of Wisconsin at Madison. He's the author of numerous scientific and popular works on this subject, and his new book, Making of the Fittest, explores how modification of the genetic code leads to the evolution of new species. Professor Carroll, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, it's really our pleasure, and I think most people are probably familiar with DNA's, quote, instructional blueprint for constructing organisms, but how do changes in the DNA lead to the evolution of new species? Well, every change in any trait, whether we're looking at coat color in mammals or a digestive enzyme or eye color or hair texture, these things are all due to changes in the genes that govern those traits. So as species change, genes change. And what we've been tracking in the DNA record is exactly the pinpointing that those genetic changes are responsible for changes in interesting traits. I see. And how does one go about this? Well, we really need to know something about the specific genes that control particular traits. So a lot of basic biology over the last several decades has been trying to figure out which genes govern how our eyes detect light, which genes encode the antibodies that fend off predators, which genes encode enzymes that help our livers function, these sorts of things. So a lot of cell biology and developmental biology and physiology has been going on to just understand a lot of body functions. And from that foundation of knowledge, we can now start asking, well, how are species different in these various characteristics? I see. And are the genomes of a lot of organisms already known now? Yes. Yeah, so we're probably somewhere up around about 800 organisms that mm. we have genomes for. Um, that includes more than a dozen mammals now and a, still an expanding uh, roster. Lots and lots of microbes. They have smaller genomes, so we can do more of them. But lots of other animals from many, many species of flies to the mouse, chimpanzee, rat, various fish, various plants. So we have quite a sampling across domains of life. I see. Again, I guess the procedure is to try and compare similar type genes between these species. Is that correct? Right. So really, in fact, closely related species. So it's, it's most interesting when we have species that are fairly closely related to each other, but differ in some discrete way. They differ in, for example, uh, how they digest a particular nutrient, or they differ in their sensitivity to certain wavelengths of light, or they differ in their appearance in some particular way. And then what we're trying to do is track those very specific genetic changes that underlie the difference in those properties. And what have been some of the interesting findings that have come across from this comparative approach? Well, I think the comparative approach gives us an inventory of all sorts of dynamics of what's going on among the sets of genes that we have. It, it allows us to identify evolving genes, those genes that are changing in adaptive ways. It allows us to identify genes that have expanded in number. So one of the other properties that goes on in genomes is that genes are duplicated. Genes can be triplicated. Large sections of the genome can be duplicated. And when that happens, that sort of creates spare parts for the genome that can then go on and sort of explore for on its own and acquire new functions. We also find pieces of DNA, that the code for which is so well-preserved throughout time that it exists in all organisms on the planet. These are genes that have been around since the beginnings of cellular life and give us a way to trace the history of life for almost 3 billion years. 
So there's lots of information in the DNA record. It's an incredibly rich source of information about how both living organisms work and what their histories are. Uh, these conserved genes, is there a reason why they aren't modified through the process of evolution? Yeah, their functions, they encode proteins that function in the most basic properties of life. In fact, replicating DNA and decoding DNA in the, in the process of expressing genes. And those are such ancient functions that these proteins have been allowed to change very little in the course of three billion years. Mutations in those genes would essentially be catastrophic mm-hmm. and disrupt the expression of all genetic information. So that code is very, very carefully preserved over time. Uh, well, what about some of the genes then that uh, do vary across the species? What are some interesting examples there? The interesting ones are probably those where we have a nice sort of natural history story that goes with it where the adaptation makes sense in terms of the way the the animals live. So some of the best cases that have been revealed lately include the evolution of coat color genes in mammals. So one of the most common forms of evolution in mammals and birds has to do with the evolution of dark coat coloring, what we call melanism. And that's very often an adaptation to the particular habitats that they are in. Either that might be a, a habitat with, where the light is relatively limited and being dark helps conceal the animal. Or uh, in one case, a, a mouse called the rock pocket mouse lives in southwestern Arizona on lava formations. And by evolving this dark form, it blends nicely with that rock background and evades predators such as owls. And it's by connecting the lifestyle of the animal, understanding the predators, understanding sort of the niche that it lives in, and then pinpointing the genetic differences that enable it to exploit that habitat that we sort of have the full circle, the full picture of how natural selection has shaped both the animal's behavior or the animal's lifestyle as well as its DNA. Uh, have uh, a lot of these animals that have evolved this dark coat color, have they arrived at it from a common ancestor or is it through independent? Uh, Great question. Independently. So mm. um, one of the genes that this has been identified change in, we now have maybe 10 to 15 examples of different birds, different mammals that have acquired the very same a pattern, in other words, a, a sort of a uniform black pattern, either in its feather or in its fur coat, but it's due to changes in the same gene. So if you think of the orange versus the black phase of jaguars mm-hmm. or the light versus dark forms of mice, and there's several different bird species that have, say, a yellow versus a black form or a white form versus a black form, it's all the same gene. And what that's telling you is that essentially evolution does repeat itself, that the same genes get hit again and again and again at different points in time, in different places on Earth, and entirely different species in similar adaptations. Mm. Uh, in your book, you also talk about genes which uh, no longer are functional in, in some organisms. They're vestigial in a sense. This is perhaps one of the surprises, I think, that goes, runs a little bit against people's intuition. As animals or any species shift habitats and lifestyles, some of the previous functions are no longer called upon. And what happens then, and it's really well understandable in the context of natural selection, natural selection now no longer cares about those genetic functions. So if mutations hit those genes, those mutations are not removed by this sort of purging process of natural selection. Those mutations pile up and the genes accumulate greater numbers of defects over time. So we ourselves, we have roughly 20,000 functional genes in the human genome, but we have about 900 genes that are just molecular fossils. They're genes that no longer function. But you 
continues to function in our ancestors. And this is true really of every species that I know of. There are genes being carried along that are remnants of genes that used to function in ancestors. And the nifty thing about the identity of some of those genes is they do reveal very specific ways in which current species live different lifestyles from their ancestors. Has it ever been the case that you've seen an example of a gene that was no longer needed and then re-co-opted? I don't know a specific case yet. It's going to be tricky. The more mutations that a gene accumulates, the harder it is to sort of bring it back to life. So if there's just one defect in the gene, one can imagine there is a measurable probability that that could revert back to being functional. But if the gene has a two or three changes in it, that reversion becomes statistically very improbable. So I don't know yet of a case of a, of a gene that's sort of come back to life, but I, I, it certainly is statistically a possibility, and I think it's a, a, probably a discovery that's going to be reported at some point here. There's also evidence from uh, the fossil record of punctuated evolution. Do you see this also at the DNA level? Well, the description of punctuated evolution is really the idea that as conditions are fairly constant, really the forms of species are fairly constant, but then probably linked to changes in climate, changes in environment, we sort of see evolution speed up. So it's sort of Mm -hmm. jumpy, it's bursty. Mm -hmm. What that would be reflected by in the DNA is that instances where things were under more intense selection for short periods, we can tell things that have been under very intense selection for short periods, but as you go sort of deeper in the time record, I can't look at, for example, at human DNA and say, oh, well, this stretch of DNA was under intense selection, you know, 40 million years ago, and this was under intense selection 5 million years or so ago. It's not quite as calibrated as that. But nonetheless, we do have pretty powerful methods for knowing that selection has cared about certain sections of our DNA. Uh, Well, maybe switching topics a little bit here, you're obviously a popularizer of the notion of evolution, uh, the U.S. anyway. This is certainly under some scrutiny. How do you feel about the current social climate with regards to the ideas of evolution? Well, the current social climate is is a wake-up call to biologists that we have not done our jobs over the last 20 or 25 years in explaining evolution to the public and doing a good job in the educational system. So I think the silver lining to this issue is that we now know we need to do a better job, and that means teachers are looking at curricula in high school and teachers are looking at curricula in colleges and saying, this is the most important idea in biology. The evidence is overwhelming. All sorts of independent lines of evidence, whether that's the geologic record, the fossil record, the DNA record, they all converge. We have to present this in a way that students understand the evidence, understand the power of the evidence, and understand how thoroughly tested the theory of evolution has been. So the current climate is understandable, and there are people, there have always been people who have been opposed to the idea of evolution on on theological grounds, but any scientific argument they've tried to raise has been shot to pieces. So, you know, as scientists, it's it's not really, our job is not so much to engage the theology as much as it is to put forth the case and, and make people understand just what the evidence is. Indeed, indeed. How did you become interested first in the field of evolutionary development in biology and, of course, also in popularizing this subject? Well, I, I came into biology, I think, through a way a lot of biologists do, which is an interest in natural history. As a kid, I was interested in snakes and other reptiles <laughs> and thought, wow, wouldn't it be neat if as a grown-up I could study some of this stuff? And I think that that's not only what unites biologists, but I think hopefully fuels the public interest in biology, whether you go to natural history museums or zoos or aquaria or just enjoy the outdoors. We're curious about the species we share the rest of the world with. So understanding where some of the magnificent diversity comes from is hopefully sort of natural curiosity, and it's been my pleasure to be able to study this at the, at the deepest level.
Very fascinating field, and you certainly written a couple of very interesting books. The new one, of course, is The Making of the Fittest, DNA, and the Ultimate Forensic Record of Evolution. Professor Carroll, thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Sean Carroll discussing evolutionary biology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, we're back, and Professor Carroll has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, the supercomputer we found behind the McDonald's, and it has come up today with the topic, highly evolved or an evolutionary dead end. So the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, for the following five items, highly evolved or evolutionary dead end? Professor Carroll, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Absolutely. Okay, here we go. Item number one, Google. Highly evolved. I think a whole lot of algorithms there, and that's pretty analogous to highly evolved organisms. Okay, uh, number two, Paris Hilton. Uh, dead end. I think uh, <clears throat> someone has said many times before about celebrity having a finite lifetime, and I think she's probably lived out many too many. All right, number three, Charles Darwin. Uh, highly evolved, and I think I can say that because if knowledge is the heritage of mankind, he's given us a tremendous heritage that's still living and growing. Indeed, indeed. Uh, number four, Donald Trump. Oh, probably highly evolved, I'd have to say. Again, a, a huge legacy in real estate, architecture, and cash. I think he's going <laughs> to live on for quite a while. Yeah, well, he's certainly building up structures for that. That's right. He's ensuring that legacy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, and finally, of course, number five, the President of the United States, George Bush. I think I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, how about we just say lame duck? <laughs> okay, that might work uh, well enough. Uh, Professor Carroll, I do want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around and playing our game. And, of course, talking about your book, Making of the Fittest. Thanks for your interest. Well, hello, hello, hello. It's Jimmy Molson from Old Time Radio here. Where are you looking at my map trying to figure out where I'm going to go? But luckily, all the map colors are very easy to distinguish. But there's only just four of them. What's the amazing thing about that? Well, if you have a map, you can color all these things with just four colors. That's the four color theorem. Amazing. And now I'm off to Coney Island. And Forrest here with this week's question of the week. You know, down here in the south, we got tons of really wonderful critters. But, you know, we don't got no elephants. I hear they come from that other continent. I've always wondered. They got them huge, beautiful tusks. But what is it made of? If you know or think you know, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your ivory might be wider. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.